0: Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. We're going to read Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. And it says this, Dear friends, you always followed my instruction when I was with you. This is Paul talking to all the believers in Christ in Philippi you always followed my instruction when I was with you. And now that I'm away, it is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. So there's only two points in this week's message. Um, There's only two. So uh, I know I'm kind of shortchanging you on that one. So I'll try to pack the two points with a whole bunch of good stuff for you. So, number one, the first point, excuse me, it's the proper integrity, the proper integrity. The first thing in chapter 12 that Paul tells us is this, you always followed my instruction, in verse 12, I'm sorry, not chapter 12, verse 12, you always followed my instruction when I was with you, and now that I'm away, it's even more important. So Paul identifies, next line in your notes, Paul identifies the need for believers to live out their faith when they are away from their teacher. When they are away from their teacher. Next line, he puts a higher priority on following the directions of scripture when we are alone. So here's Paul he, has, uh, he was only in Philippi for a few days, if you remember earlier in our series. He's only there for a few days, and he starts the church um, just you know, very quickly, and it grows very quickly, and this letter of Philippi is being written 10 years later. Um, some, uh, there's some evidence that he may have taken another visit there in between now and then, but he doesn't have a whole lot of face time with these people. And so what he's doing is he's recalling the time that he was there and said, hey, when I was there, you were following my instructions. That's great. But now that I'm not there, it is more important for you to continue to follow my instructions, which we know is scripture, when I'm not present. There is... Um, uh, whenever my mom, when uh, she's not here, so I can say this. Whenever my mom would drop me off at my friend's house when we were little, right, uh, she would always tell me something. And my guess is that if your parents in the room, or 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 if your kids who, well, you obviously have parents, but if your parents may have told you this as well, right? That um, be on your best behavior. Anybody else was told that as a kid, right? Be on your best behavior because they didn't want you acting up at all. But if you were going to act up, they wanted you under their sur- supervision so they could kind of correct you, Ron pool style. My dad, you know, he was, he believed in that whole spare the rod, spoil the child thing, right? So he was making sure I was corrected. He didn't want me to go and act up at somebody else's house. Now, this is really good for kids who are, you know, learning to kind of get out of their house and, and, and visit other places and be respectful. But what has happened is our Western Americanized culture has taken this idea of beyond your best behavior and it has applied it to Almost every level we go into, depending on who we're talking to. Let me give you an example. I've told you this story before, uh, once or maybe twice. Um, So, so you guys, if you know it, just you know, just ride with me on this one. Um, But I got on an airplane several years ago and was flying from Phoenix, I think, to, to Dallas or somewhere over towards the middle of the country. And the guy that I was sitting next to on the airplane, he just starts talking. Like he didn't even ask me if I wanted to talk, you know, I didn't have my headphones with me, you know, he just he just starts rolling, right? And he is cursing and he's using all kind of foul language and he's like talking about all uh, like Kind of nonsense about women, you know what I mean? About this party he was at, la- you know, last week, and how man it was hype, and he was, you know, and it was just all the stuff he was doing. He was like flirting with the with the stewardess who was, you know, making sure everybody's seatbelt was on and bringing, you know, like the little drink cart down the down the middle of the airplane. And he is just going to town saying all this kind of stuff. And he must have talked for forty five minutes. And I just went, "Cool, yeah." Oh, it's funny, man. Awesome. And so I just let him go. Just let him talk. And then inevitably, he needed to take a drink of his of, of his little, you know, four ounce Coke or whatever they gave you on the airplane. And he's like, so what do you do? And I went, oh, I work at a church. And I'm part of a ministry. And it was like somebody just went click and he instantly changed. Well, bless you, brother. You know, I was like, bro, this is, it's just not working. Just it's all right. Just let it go, man. And he just kept on it. Like he saw that the, where I was and he's like, Oh, where he was and what he had just talked about. And you can see him like have these wide eyes playing back everything he's just told me in the last 45 minutes going through his head. Right. And he says, and he goes, um, you know, how, hallelujah to the, uh, Man, a big man up up there, stairs in heaven, yeah. I'm like, yeah, bro, yeah, it's awesome. And so, do you think at that moment that he was being more sincerely himself when he was just talking with no reservation? Or was he being more sincerely himself once he figured out that I wasn't participating in some of the stuff he is participating in? Well, all of it, right? But, and and... Or was he being his authentic self there? Or was he being his authentic self earlier? Earlier. You can talk back to me. It's all right. He was being it earlier. It was wildly obvious, right? But he remembered somewhere. Maybe his mom was like my mom. Maybe he he knew Ramona. You know what I mean? Like, you know, be on your best behavior. And he realized I can't talk this way or I shouldn't be talking this way in this environment. Now, this is a problem, because, next line in your notes, the mindset of, quote, unquote, being on our best behavior when we're around our pastor or church leaders is like a ticking time bomb. The mindset of being on our best behavior when around our pastor or church leaders is like a ticking time bomb. Now, you might say, really? It's kind of it's kind of heavy for like just someone who's kind of flipped real quick let me get to that. But before, before we get to the time bomb, let's look at something very obvious. Let's take the low-hanging fruit, right? The next line of your notes. This mindset, the being on our best behavior mindset, shows immaturity and insecurity, So if you're somebody who does this, who flips the way you really are when you get in front of somebody else and you kind of adjust to what you think they want you to say or how it will be, you know, so it's not awkward or uncomfortable. If you put that, I want to be on my best behavior all the time and you flip from what you naturally are to, I got to, you know, be suitable for where I'm at, then it's immature and insecure. You're showing that about yourself. That's the low hanging fruit. The reason that I'm telling you it's like a ticking time bomb is this. Next line in your notes. This mindset also leads us to justify private sin when we see the pastor and church leaders make mistakes. This mindset leads us to justify private sin when we see the pastor and church leaders make mistakes. One of the things that we constantly repeat here, and you'll hear me say it probably ad nauseum, is there are no superheroes in this room. And that starts with me, the guy sitting here teaching. Anyone who sits here and teaches, Ryan, or anybody that comes in that that helps and and teaches, my wife Nina, when she's leading um, um, these groups and she's singing and worshiping, Brian, who just did a great job leading worship for us here this morning, there are no superheroes in this room. None. There are people who are striving to serve God the best way they possibly can. And that's important to know that just because you have a role of some pastor or leader or teacher or elder or worship leader or something does not mean you have attained some higher status where you don't walk, you just float, where what you do. Uh, in the bathroom don't stink, right? Like, like you don't attain this, this level, be, and then all of a sudden the door gets open to you for being where, where, where the Lord's placed you to serve other people in a church. You are a person walking out your relationship with God in real time who's been given a responsibility to turn around and teach everybody else. But that does not mean that I'm not going to say something stupid. I'm not going to say something flawed. I'm not going to make some joke that is r- super offensive. I hope I don't do that. Like, my wife will throw something at me, I'm sure. But I, I hope I don't do stuff like that. But I, I'll try to be cognizant of it. But there is going to come a time where I'm going to mess up. Any time, if you go back and listen to any of the messages from the beginning of when we started this church a year and a half ago, I am wildly transparent about the things I struggled with before, um, e- even as a young believer. In the time in my life where I would kind of wandered away from the Lord because of hurt and things like that, I'm very transparent about that. Why? Because everybody struggles, And if you come here and talk to me or talk to Brian or talk to Ryan or talk to Nina or talk to anybody else around here or even just the people in the building. I get around these church people and you go, I got to put on my best behavior then what's going to happen when the church people mess up, when the pastor messes up, and I will mess up, when the teacher or the leader messes up, and all of us will mess up, you go, man, I've been putting on this whole front for them this whole time. I've been putting on this, you know, using up all my energy, my creativity to find the right words to say in the right environment. And then they screwed up. So it's not as bad as, you know, I, did, I thought I was failing. I'm not doing too bad. They messed up and you go home and justify your private sin. In this way, when we put on our, 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 um, our best behavior, we're not being authentic, we're not being ourself, we're showing our immaturity as a believer in Christ, or maybe just as an individual, and it is a ticking time bomb because it will be something that we use to justify sin if my comparison is only to the guys that are leading, the women that are leading, the people in the church, and it's not to Scripture. Do not, under any circumstance, compare your life to mine, compare your life, your relationship with God, your actions to Scripture, because that's what I'm trying to do. That's what I am supposed to be doing, just like everybody else. We have to have the proper integrity. Next on your notes. What is truly in our hearts come out when no one is looking. What's truly in our heart comes out when no one is looking. And Paul is very keenly aware of this. He is telling, he is telling the, the believers in Philippi, look, when I'm there, y'all are good. When I'm there, y'all are acting right. When I'm there in front of, in front of you and we're face to face and we're in the same room, everything is going right. But when I walk out, it is more important that you maintain the life of a believer and the principles of Scripture, it is more important to do it when you're away. This flips the American church narrative on its head because most people try to go, I need to put on that good face when I walk in here to this church building with fellow believers in Christ. And then when I get home, then I can take that down and be like, oh man, that was wearing me out. Now I can just be me. That flips that narrative over and puts the greater importance on when you're away from your leaders, your teachers, your, your, your spiritual mentors, or, or, or however you describe that. When you are away from them, it is more important for you to maintain the life of Christ. Why? Relationships can be destroyed in private moments. Marriages, ministries families, years of building a witness to your unsaved friends can be destroyed in private moments. Why? Because if what you're really doing in private becomes public, then the trust that you've earned is now gone. Proverbs 11.3 says this, the integrity of the upright guides them The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Look at that. The integrity of the upright guides them. It is something that's going to help us to make the correct decision as believers in Christ. If you have ever struggled in private moments, or if you're ever been one of those people who puts on the good face when you're around the church folks or the pastor or the church leaders um, guess what you're human so let's take the condemnation and the pressure off real quick because I have done that in a weird kind of morbid gross way even as someone who was in the ministry earlier in his life I have done this to try to impress people. I have done this to try to um, gain favor with people who I thought I was like looking up to. I have done this many, many times. And the conviction that I felt at those moments was wildly real. It's almost like there was this gripping in my heart that was just like, stop it, stop. It doesn't mean that you cut this mouth loose and be like, let me tell you what I really been thinking. No, there's got to be discipline, right? I'm not talking about there being no discipline. What I'm saying is that every person has some type of struggle in this area, everybody at some point in time. If you've mastered it, you're dead or lying, There's no funerals this week, right? And so so all of y'all, so if there's anybody in here that I've mastered this, you're lying. But now we have this admission, all of us in this room, whether you want to admit it or not, I'm going to admit it publicly for you. There is a question about our integrity at some point in our life and maybe today, maybe not but what tool do we have to help us navigate this i'm living differently when i'm around all the good folks the church folks the pastor or whatever versus when i'm alone my integrity is falling apart because my decision making is falling apart james 5:16 i'm going to read the first 3 words of this verse, and then I want everybody else to join me on the next three words, okay? I'm going to read the first three. Everybody join me on the next three. This will cook your noodle a little bit. Ready? Confess your sins to each other. Let's stop. I just put the Bible down when I read that one. I was like, oh, come on. Some of you might have grown up in a in a in a tradition where you had to go and confess your sin to like a priest or you had to go and confess your sin to somebody. And then they told you how many prayers to pray so that you would kind of get over it or, you know, this would cover up all the things that you did wrong. But that's not here in the scripture. It's saying to confess your sins to each other. There's no period right there. Look what it continues to say. And pray for each other. This one fried me too. So you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous man has great power and produces wonderful results. See, I had no idea that when I... When I would recite that old scripture, like the, not old, but the, the older version, the old King James version of the scripture, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, I had no idea it was only half the scripture. Why is it telling us, why is James, <coughs> excuse me, why is James telling us to confess our sins to each other so we may be healed because the prayer of the, 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 the righteous person that is hopefully pursuing God in this room has great power and produces wonderful results. Everybody thinks if I can go to this conference or this big church or this, you know, uh, if I can get involved in this celebrity kind of idea of this pastor, if I'm going to have that guy pray for me, then I'll be good. The scripture says, uh uh-uh, uh, it's not that guy. It's the Spirit of God that resides inside of every one of us as believers in Christ. And we are supposed to find somebody that we trust. And then go to them, confess what you're struggling with, that you have some type of relationship with. Um, don't just walk in the door and be like, hey, uh, it's your first time here? Yeah, what's your name? Christian? I'm Matt. Yeah, here's everything I've done in the last 90 days. You're gonna, What are you going to do? Bro... Um, I gotta go get something out of my car and then drive out of the parking lot at 100 miles an hour, right? I'm not talking about doing that. I'm talking about a gift that God has given to us as believers is each other. It is wrong for everything to revolve around the person who sits here in our church, in our fellowship of believers. Everything revolves around Jesus. Everything revolves around him. And if and we cannot get that twisted. So what are we supposed to do? Can you come and ask me to pray for you? Sure, I would love to. We'd be happy to do that. Is there something that you go, man, I know you more than everybody else, so I want to come and say something? Absolutely, I'm an open book. But it doesn't mean that you have to get to the person that's sitting here behind a microphone and have them pray for me because they've attained some higher status that I don't have. They have some hotline to God that I don't have. No, he is available to you. And the relationship that Ryan has and that Christian has and that Brian has and that Sergio has and Mike has, everybody else in this room has, that if you are really pursuing God, then when you pray for the other person, it is why it has great power and produces wonderful results. Pray for each other. Now I'm gonna now and now that I've told you to kind of open up the can of worms and dump them out to somebody. Just let me put a couple of guidelines here for you. Next on your notes, confessions of private struggles are to remain private. Confessions of private struggles are to remain private. We're gonna keep going on our notes. The next three bullet points: Our response to confession of sins and struggles. So if somebody comes to you and says, hey, can I talk to you? I need to tell you about something I'm struggling with. I'm not going to vomit every problem I've ever had in my life since I was 14, not doing that. But I have this major thing I'm struggling with right now. I need some help with. I need some prayer with. It is the thing dominating my mind and my prayer time and my thoughts. And then they give it to you, and they put it in your hands. These are the three, three ways we're supposed to respond. Number one, confidentiality. Confidentiality. Number two, or the second bullet point there is prayer. And the third bullet points, two words, follow up. If I came to Christian and I poured out a struggle that I was having to him, if I poured out that struggle to him, and then he goes, "Cool man, I'll pray for you," and then leaves and I never hear from him for two weeks, what's going to happen? I am an idiot for telling him. That's going to happen in my mind, right? Like, I, what did I do? I just, man, now I've got like a someone who's got dirt on me, and they're not even checking in. It's going to leave that person. It's going to drive them nuts. But what James just said is confess your sins and pray for each other. It didn't say just find somebody to confess your sins. He's telling you to confess your sins to each other, other believers that you trust. That trust has got to be earned the trust has got to be seen and there's got to be an example of it but eventually you're going to have to lean on that trust and say hey man i'm struggling with fill in the blank and let me tell you a reason why you do this at the end of my dad's life he died at 51 he had he carried many a burden And he begged my mom not to tell anybody, especially me and my brother, because he felt like it would impact us in a negative way to pull us away from our faith. He didn't want to say it out of his mouth, and the burden on him was enormous. The reason that you open up and say, this is what I'm struggling with right here is because you bring the light of the gospel and prayer into an area that may be so dark it's that you don't know what's going to happen. There can be some fear there. If I confess that I'm struggling with this, ooh, they're going to think differently of me. But if you open up and show somebody that I have, I don't want to guarantee it because I know there's somebody who's going to make a mistake. There is a high probability you're going to receive a reaction of acceptance and grace not accepting that it needs to continue but i understand where you're at i got struggles too you're going to experience a level of grace that you didn't know was available to you because why somebody's praying for you keeping it confidential and following up with you to just figure out hey you doing all right i've been praying for you it is a gift You may feel like it's pressure or tension, but this is a gift God has given us as a body of believers. Now, let me say one thing very strongly to us here. The next line of your notes. We as a fellowship of believers in Christ must not tolerate gossip. It is a poison that will destroy our integrity and the fellowship of believers. No one at any scenario has ever said, man, I'm doing so well after we gossiped. You ever ever heard anybody say that? Most people, they gossip, they feel grimy or they feel regret or they feel like I'm just going to be justified in doing what I want to do. Right? No one leaves gossip feeling like, oh, This is wonderful. Man, I just feel so free. It's awesome. Nope. Why? Do you know that gossip is listed by Paul in some of his other books along with some of the worst sins that people who reject God commit? Gossip is on the list. It only divides. It never unites. I want to authorize, deputize. I don't have the authority to do that, but God's word is giving you the authority now and deputizing you to say, hey, if you hear the gossip, if somebody approaches you with it, cut it out then. Address it. Feel free to do that. And and you may come at it strong, uh, and I'm not going to be mad at you. That'll be like the kid who picked on my son and kept cussing at him, and I told him, I said, son, that You know, wouldn't leave him alone. He's in elementary school. And I said, look, next time that kid starts talking about you and God that way again, just lay him out. I know you'll get suspended. I know it's not nice, but it'll be the funnest suspension you've ever had in your life, right? It'll be a great nine days. We'll just hang out. Don't hit somebody. That's not what I'm telling you. But if you address it strongly, it is a divisive tactic of the enemy meant to destroy our fellowship of believers and erode our trust and integrity. Deal with it and shut it down. We're not we don't we're not just we're not gonna tolerate it. Does that make sense? Not because Matt's in charge. Nope, because the word of God is. And we're gonna do our best to follow this. The proper integrity. Point number two, it's the last one. The proper fear. The proper fear. Philippians chapter um, 2, the verse 13 that we read. It said, work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. When I read this at the beginning, I had a... um, Sorry, Sergio, I keep doing that to you. I keep standing up. Um... When I read this, the very first time I read this as a younger believer, I thought, wait a minute, how am I supposed to obey God with reverence and fear? There's more than 300 references in Scripture from God, an angel, a prophet, or Jesus telling the the, the followers of Christ or the, the, the children of Israel, don't be afraid. So how in the world are you telling me don't be afraid more than 300 times, but... Here, you're telling me to obey with reverence and fear. And so as I dug into this word fear, I, I realized something important about it. It's the next line in your notes. The word fear in this scripture doesn't mean being afraid. It refers to reverence and respect. And I probably should have clarified this a little bit better on your notes. So, If you want to write this down too, just somewhere on the side. It refers to an immense amount of reverence and, uh, and respect. <clears throat> my wife, uh, every once in a while, and I'm sure that I'm the only one that this happens to, but my wife started watching a TV show on Amazon Prime or something that was years old. But, you know, they're the best time to watch them because there's like five seasons of them and there's no commercials and you just kind of binge watch them, right? And so it was one of our days off and she was watching one of these shows and she got into it. It's called Hoarders. Anybody ever seen this show? So I was, I had heard about it, but I knew that watching it would give me like stress. So I was like, I always avoided it. So I walked in the room and I'm, I'm looking at these pictures of these people's homes. And I'm like, I'm sweating. Like just thinking about what it would be like to be in that home right now. Like there's just all this stuff everywhere. Right. <clears throat> so the one that she just recently is past week, um, uh, had watched, I walked in and it was the nastiest, grossest thing and I've ever seen. And I realize these people have a, you know, a mental condition or a psychiatric problem. So don't send me emails and be like, have compassion. I I understand, I understand. But there's like it wasn't just like clothes and clutter. It was garbage. And they and and it was so bad that this woman, she had two kids, one of them had grown up. Um, and already moved out of the house by the time it got real bad. But her hoarding and the trash and the garbage and the stench was so bad that the city officials came and removed her son in the eighth grade from her home and put the child with a relative because he's laying in bed at night and the roaches are crawling across him. He hears the bugs crawling over all of the nasty stuff. I'm not trying to, like, like weird you out. This is his story, not mine. And so I'm like, man, this is crazy. And the thing that stuck with this young man was the, the, the county or the city officials told her, clean up the house. It don't even have to be spotless. Just get rid of the garbage, and then your son can come back. And she never did it. Her son in eighth grade went to go live with his sister and was raised throughout high school and into his college years by her. And he eventually moved like to the other end of the country, the farthest point he could get away from this condition, this where his mom was. And when the show came through, they invited him back, and it was an odd thing for me to see this 20 now 28 year old man who hadn't seen his mom in four years walk up and she's sitting on a on a rocking chair on the front of the porch and him walk up and kind of hug her and I'm like man you hadn't seen your mom in four years this is super formal and so then they get him away and he's walking through the house and he's like man this is even worse than I remember it like this is bad like when they finally cleaned it all out, they found multiple dead cat carcasses underneath all the stuff that had been there years. There was only skeletons and fur left. This is nasty, right? Like, like I'm never coming back. But this was gross, right? This, it, was, it was just hideous, horrible. And he said something that stuck with me. They're like, man, what is it like for you to see your mom like this? And he's like, you know, honestly... um, I uh I don't really have a relationship with her. I don't have any emotional attachment. I'm here because I feel morally obligated to help her as my parent. He looked at her and said, "There's no connection here." He looked at her and said, "There's this broken relationship. There's a distant thing." He didn't cry. He wasn't happy to see her. He wasn't sad to see her. He was just like, man, if she would just change, it would help her. But, I mean, she picked trash over me. So, what? And as I watched him make that statement, something grabbed my heart. Because this is the perspective that some people take with God. God's not the hoarder and, you know, is picking something else besides you. That's not pertaining to what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about his statement. A lot of people want to come to the gathering and keep everybody at that arm distance and not get involved relationally, and they also want to do that to God. Next on your notes. Some people don't have a relationship with God and come to church events or services out of obligation, not relationship. That guy said, "Man, I just come here because I kind of feel obligated as my parent. She kind of brought me in the world, so I'm here to kind of help." And that attitude has permeated people who come to church and call themselves Christians. And what do they do? They go, "I come to the service because, you know, I don't go to hell." But I don't like these people. I've been burned by the church. I've been burned by a pastor who I've always was on my best behavior around, and I found out he screwed up, and then I'm just throwing this whole thing out. I'm tired of walking in a room with a bunch of hypocrites, all that stuff. So what they do is they deal with God on a level that says, I'm going to create distance between me and you. I'm going to keep coming here to hopefully punch that checklist, that time card that says, look, I put the time in. So hopefully God will see that, you know, I believe in him, but I came to church and I try to, you know, give him the offering plate every once in a while and I try to do all this stuff. And maybe he'll let me in when all this stuff is done. When I get to heaven, he'll, he'll let me in. And they have this very dismissive attitude when it comes to God. As I was sitting there reading this scripture and thinking about the people who have a dismissive attitude towards God, something gripped my heart. People who have this dismissive attitude, like I'm going to take him or leave him attitude with God, are not obeying him out of reverence and fear. There is no reverence and there is no fear because they're assuming that the people who say they represent him are him. And I'm here to tell you that is not the case. Everybody in this room, its why I made such a big deal about it earlier, is struggling with something, with something in their family, something in their personal life, something in their mind, something in their heart, something physically, something in a relationship that they have with. Somebody somewhere is consistently struggling with something. It is happening. But that does not... Our character reflects on our struggles, but our God's character is perfect. We are not going to attain that level of perfection in our character. We're going to strive to. We're going to ask him to change our hearts and and help us uh, with the struggles that we have, but we're not going to achieve that level of character. We're not going to because he's God. People want to look at him and go, you know what? Yeah, I think I'll go to church this week. I don't think I want to go. Oh, you know, I I want to be involved, but not just yet. You know, I want to get up and pray and do all the stuff I know I'm supposed to do, but it'd be more fun to go on a run. I don't get that, but some people say that, right? Like, I don't, I'm not a runner. <clears throat> My big behind does not want to run anywhere. Um, but... They treat God as this casual, he'll be there if I need him. And when we approach God with that attitude, what we're saying is there is no reverence or fear. There is not an immense amount of respect that I have for him. And as I began to think about that, there was a little bit of like real fear that popped up in my heart like, man, do I do this? Do I casually deal with the all-powerful creator of the universe who has no need for me but out of his immense love has found a way to bridge the gap from between me being left in sin and him being perfect and holy through sending his son to die on a cross to be buried and raised again like we celebrated last week? Do I look at him and be like, nah, it's cool, man. I don't want that. What level of arrogance is inside of me when I treat the almighty God like that? I'm not trying to give you a picture that God is the principal with a paddle and he's waiting for you to mess up and smack you. That's not the God we're talking about here. We're talking about the one true God who is the essence of love, but on the other side of that, he is still God. He is still the supreme ruler over everything and us. Everything moves and grows and operates because he's the one that opened his mouth and set it and put it into place. The next, um, we must remember, next line in your notes, we must remember to keep in full view who God really is. We have to remember who he really is and who is he. Next four bullet points first John three twenty and romans eleven thirty three reminds us that God is all knowing. He just doesn't know what you did last night. He just doesn't know the gaps in your integrity. He doesn't just know everything that you're struggling with. He knows what your thoughts are, what your intents were, what really happened on the inside of your heart uh, uh, that you caught and then flipped it over with, I'm going to be on my best behavior style action. He knows what's going on inside of you. He knows the repercussions and the ripple effects of every decision that you've made. He knows the repercussions and the ripple effects of every decision you didn't make. He knows the repercussions and decisions of the, the decisions that you didn't make. That would lead to de- uh, uh, des- decisions that you didn't even know that you would have had if you went down a different place. He knows everything. He's all powerful. Revelation one eight tells us that all power resides with Him. Everything that is living and alive and in motion was put that way because God spoke it into being. He didn't start with some with a whole bunch of um. Of materials, he created the materials from nothing. He didn't start with atoms. He created the electrons and the neutrons and all of the, the the intricate pieces that create the atoms that create you and me. He put. He didn't discover the theory of gravity. He invented it. He's all powerful. Proverbs fifteen three. He's all seeing. He sees everything. Where can, where can I go to hide from God? Nowhere. If I go to heaven, he's there. If I go down into death, he is there. If I go into a place where uh, a far off country, he is there. No matter where I go, he is always there. In the fourth bullet, he's all places. Psalms 139, 7 through 12. He sees where I'm at. He knows where I'm at because wherever I'm at, he's already there. That is the God. It's hard for us to wrap our head around, but that is when we're talking about, eh, I don't know if I really want to be involved with God very much. Stop it for a second and remember who he is. How can we be so flippant with our relationship with him? How can we look at that and be like, you know, I just hope I get in and keep it at arm's distance with the God who made us who knit you together in your mother's womb. One small word with three letters changes everything for us. Next on your notes, G-O-D, it's God. Everything changes for us because of him. We have life because of him. We avoid eternal death because of him. We find our true purpose because of him. Everything happens because of him. God is the creator. He made everything that you see. He is our heavenly father. If you have a terrible earthly father or a father who is absent or one who died and you feel like some days, man, bro, you could have stuck around and helped me out with a couple more things before you decided to kick off, right? Like like me, like in, in, the, in my scenario. It doesn't matter if you've got a terrible father or a great father. He eclipses all of them because he is Perfect. He's our comfort. He's our peace. He's our savior. He is holy. He is pure. He is perfect. He is love. He is not our homeboy. He is not our co-pilot, and he is not some universal get-out-of-jail-free card. He is our greatest reward. Most people, I won't say most, many people, especially in our American westernized culture, want to come to God because they think, you know, what do I get? Salvation, that's cool. Eternal life, that's cool. But what do I get right now? What do I get right now? Is there fame? is there some money involved? Is there some kind of financial blessing involved? Is there some, some kind of elevated status? Is there another home or a car? Is there moving me up into the top 1% of the richest nation that's ever existed in the history of mankind that I already live in? Is there something more than that he can give me? Is there something more than freedom to be able to open my Bible whenever I want to, and, and to engage him and to exor- absorb his word? Is there something else that I get because I'm coming here and doing all the right things and for and giving up all that stuff is there something that I get yes him he is the greatest reward there is no true peace outside of him there is no true purpose outside of him there is no eternity outside of him he is the greatest reward Are you telling me, Matt, that he's not going to give me any of that? No, he might. He might trust you with finances or some kind of influence to push people towards the gospel, to help the homeless, to fulfill the the mandates of scripture. He may do that. He might. But whether he does it or not, you get him. Him. We get him. Him. He is the greatest reward. Now, we live in the real world. And the next sign of your notes is very true. We can sometimes have a tendency to envy those who aren't serving God. We can sometimes have a tendency to envy those who aren't serving God. But in these moments, we need to remember who our Father, our King, and our God truly is. Matt, all these guys get to go do all this crazy stuff. They get to sleep with whatever they want to. They get to live however they want to. They get to do whatever substance they want to do. They get to drunk as much as they want to get drunk. They can buy whatever car they want to buy. They ain't got no concern about anybody else. Mm -hmm. Right. Read Ecclesiastes. Where, Where does that end? The wisest man to ever live was Solomon, wrote two books in the Bible, Proverbs, both of the Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. And he says, everything that is a life pursuit outside of pleasing God is vanity. And he was one of the wealthiest men to ever exist in history. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And at the end of all the women he could find, all the women that he wanted, all of the greatest uh, treasures that money could buy, all the greatest riches, he said, it means nothing. It means nothing. Why? Because God is the greatest prize. What happens if we envy them? We need to remember who God is and remember his word. Proverbs 23, 17 through 18, is in your notes. Don't envy sinners. But always continue to what? Same word immense respect and reverence. Continue to have an immense and uh, immense level of respect and reverence for the Lord. You will be rewarded for this. Your hope will not be disappointed. And what is the reward? Him. Next on your notes, we should maintain a deep sense of reverence and awe for God and be careful that we do not allow ourselves to view God down on a mere human level. How do I view God on a mere human level? Um, You casually discard him. Like he's a shirt you're not really sure if you like at the store. Like an old pair of socks. Yeah, they're comfortable with kind of wearing out. Um, I used to believe that when I was little, but I've grown out of that God stuff. Casually dealing with the all-powerful creator in that way shows we do not have that respect and reverence for him. Proverbs 9, verse 10 Fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One results in good judgment. Proverbs 10, 27, Fear of the Lord lengthens one's life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. Proverbs 14, 27, Fear of the Lord is a life-giving fountain. It offers escapes from the snares of death. When I was uh, little, Um, I was probably about eight or nine years old my family lived in this duplex on on the end of this cul-de-sac in central Florida and I'd ride my bike and I could always go around the you know down the the end of the cul-de-sac but I couldn't go on the next street right because they were like wasn't my area you know and so this little L-shaped driveway with a big circle and come back you know I drove it all the time and um, I encountered bullies now I'd like to say that I stood up to the bullies all the time. But that was not my story. I was somebody who, until I grew four inches after high school, was picked on at some point in time. These two kids, I remember, they were driving around, and they would chase me. I was on my little black Huffy bike with little blue stripes. I was booking it on that little sucker around the corners, and they were trying to cut through the grass and stuff to chase me. And sometimes I had to get away. Sometimes I wouldn't. And they try to push my bike over or throw things at you or whatever. And so I came home one day. I was tired of it. I told my dad, "My dad, this is driving me crazy. It's driving me nuts. These kids are keep bullying me and saying stuff. And there's two of them. If it's one of them, you know, I could try to fight. And I was lying. I was not good at fighting. And he's like, "Son, stay away from them. Do your thing. But if they ever get you in a spot where you can't get out, just call out to me." <clears throat> I'm like, okay. A couple weeks later, guess what happened? Got chased again. And this time, these guys cornered me right at the end of our driveway, a little nine-year-old kid, kind of afraid. And well, I was afraid before, but this confrontation, I wasn't so afraid. Because I looked over and saw my, little, my, my dad's little white work van at home, and I was like, ah, he's home. So they're telling me about what they're going to do to me and beat me up and bloody nose and, you know, Take the bike and all this kind of stuff and so I'm like, guys, leave me alone, stop this, you know, don't make me call my dad out here and they're like, Oh, what are you gonna do what's your dad gonna do? Because if he comes out here we'll go, we got him too. And I went, All right, dad Look at him, he's the little dude's calling for his dad. Oh dude, you're calling out for your mommy next and then uh then the door opened. And my dad walked out and he was not a particularly imposing figure. Five foot eleven, hundred and seventy pounds. He was hundred and seventy pounds then. It wasn't always that way. He got a little anyway. Um but he walks out. He was not an imposing figure unless you were nine. Cause when he walked out the door, the look and the story changed from the people who were opposing me. Hello, sir. What's going on, Matt? Oh, these two, um, these are the guys I was telling you about, Dad. These are the ones who were saying, what did you say? You're going to give me a bloody nose, and this one's going to take my bike, and this one's going to push me in a ditch over here. And it didn't matter what my dad said because you were going to take him out too? Yeah, is that what you said just five seconds ago right before he walked out? No, he's lying, sir. We didn't know. We never said any of that. He's like, yeah, I know. I see how this goes. And he, as any good father would, threatened them with an inch of their life. I'll take you back to your parents, I'll take you back to your house you know i'll you know, and if they don't do anything about it, I'll turn you over mindy and I'll spank you now today you can go to jail for that, but back in the you know late you know mid eighties that's acceptable, so those guys drifted off and ran out and never messed with me again. I had a loving relationship with my father, he corrected me many times. He was my disciplinarian. He was also my provider. He was also the one who read me scripture at night. He's also the one that took me to church. I had this relationship with him, but there was a moment where the other side of the coin needed to be seen, and that was his vengeance and his defense of his children. I didn't see that a lot from him, but I saw it when I needed it, And knew that that strength was there. And it made the respect I had for him increase. Because he wasn't taking that that nonsense, that strength out on me as his child. It was reserved for the people who opposed me. The last scripture I want to read you is from the book of Nahum. And Nahum was a prophet in the Old Testament who... His name, name, the name Nahum, means um, uh, comfort or console. During this time, the nation of Israel was broken into two parts. There was a northern part, Israel, and a southern part, Judah. And Israel, the northern part, had been overrun by the enemies of God, the Assyrian army. And God sent Nahum his voice of comfort and, co- and consoling to say something to his kids, to his people. And look what he says. Verse 2. The Lord is a jealous God filled with vengeance and rage. He takes revenge on all who oppose him and continues to rage against his enemies. The Lord is slow to get angry, but his power is great and he never lets the guilty go unpunished. He displays his power in the whirlwind and the storm. The billowing clouds are the dust beneath his feet. At his command, the oceans dry up and the rivers disappear. The lush pastures of Bashan and Carmel fade and the green forests of Lebanon wither. In his presence, the mountains quake and the hills melt away. The earth trembles and its people are destroyed. Who can stand before his fierce anger? Who can survive his burning fury? His rage blazes forth like fire and the mountains crumble to the dust of his presence. This is Nahum reminding God's people, he's not out to do this to y'all. He's out to avenge the enemies of his children. And this is the side, the strong side, the strong arm of God that will act swiftly on your behalf. Like a nine-year-old kid who was being bullied and his dad stepped out to say, this ends now. How do you know this, Matt? Let's keep reading verse 7 through 10. The Lord is good, a strong refuge when trouble comes. He is close to those who trust him. But he will sweep away his enemies in an overwhelming flood. He will pursue his foes into the darkness of night. Why are you scheming against the Lord? He will destroy you with one blow. He won't need to strike twice. His enemies tangled like thorn bushes and staggering like drunks will be burned up like dry stubble in the field. This is the greatest scripture that I've found recently that describes the next line in your notes. God is the lion and the lamb. He is both the strong arm defender, the, the God who is sometimes in the Old Testament referred to the terrible, wonderful strength of almighty God who's it terrible for those who are opposing him or his children and when his children see him act in that way their respect level increases to a point that says you know what I am a I am someone who is obeying him out of reverence and fear we don't serve some puny weak passive God. He is wonderful, counselor, everlasting God, the prince of peace. He is mighty. He is powerful. He is the creator. He is all-knowing. He is all-seeing. He is all places. He is everywhere. There is nothing that has happened to you that hasn't that he hasn't seen. There is no tear that you have cried, that he hasn't caught the tears and, and held them for you until a later time when your prayer is answered. There is not a moment that God has missed about your life he is God and when you say Jesus last night in your notes you say a mouthful Paul is telling all of the believers of Philippi and by extension telling all of us as believers today you got to have integrity. Live. It's more important to live in the way that Scripture designs us to live when you are away from your leaders, your teachers, your pastors, the ones who have been teaching you about Scripture. Take those and apply them in real life. Don't use them to create a bigger mask when we're around each other. And we need to remember who we serve. We need to have the fear of God more than the fear of man. We need to have the fear of God more than the fear of the future. We need to have the fear of God more than the fear of the past. We need to have the fear of God more than a fear of whatever it is that you may be in fear of. Fill in the blank. When the fear of God steps in, when we remember the immense level of honor and reverence and respect that is due Him, and we remember just how holy, just how pure, just how powerful He really is— then everything that may be overwhelming to us immediately shrinks when it is compared to him. Compare it to your ability, compare it to mine, it may have a fighting chance. Compared to him, it's hard to even see. And Paul is telling us to obey God. Work hard. Work hard at bearing at the evidence of your salvation, and also serve God with reverence and fear, with an immense level of respect. My question for us sitting in this room today, and my assumption here, my hunch, is that God would prompt somebody to bring this message today because there are people in here watching or who will listen to this later who are dealing with some type of fear. Some of you may be afraid somebody's going to find out what, how I'm really living. Somebody's going to find out that I've been fronting this whole time or I've been saying I'm good and I'm not. I've been struggling with this sin for a long time, this private sin and I don't know about telling people, I'm afraid to do that. You might be dealing with some type of fear because you have forgotten just who you serve and who this book is about and just how strong and powerful he is. And today is merely a reminder from the Apostle Paul Written to the church in Philippi and by extension us as believers in Christ to remember who we serve. And when you employ that idea, that remembrance, that truth and reality, everything else is going to fade away.